and welcome to The Corona Zone, the podcast for people stuck in quarantine and wondering what the hell is going on. I'm Kirsten and I'm here with Gabby. Thank you for joining us again for episode eight. Yeah, we're back for another week. I think we've done seven weeks of lockdown now. We're recording this Sunday evening, uh, just after Boris's announcement, if that helps uh, place where we are. Um, And uh, yeah, we've all kind of been waiting for the latest news, but also the uh, reporting of advice to do with the lockdown has kind of been a bit up in the air this week, a lot of confusion, because it seems like things aren't coming through official channels and uh we'll, we'll get to that later maybe but um <laughs> it's it's been a bit confusing to follow yes the latest guidance seems to be to stay alert which a few people have pointed out is a little bit vague <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm not really sure what that means I, i've been enjoying the joke so people um photos of people setting up binoculars <laughs> looking outside <laughs> um or someone saying it's all right if you see coronavirus coming you just gotta dodge it now like <laughs> what do, what does alert mean for something that is highly contagious invisible often symptomless yeah and there was the stay at home if you can and stay alert whether you're at home or out and about but it's like yeah. what stay alert at home like can we sleep at night What's confusing as well is that we're still in a period of time where cases are going up, right? Yeah. Global cases are touching on 4 million. They're 3.9 million just now. And deaths are over a quarter of a million. It's also notable that despite the UK population making up less than 1% of the global population, we've had, I think it's around about 11% of the global COVID deaths. Of course, there may be issues with underreporting in some countries, so we do know that that's maybe not exactly representative, but I think it's still safe to say that we've got a pretty devastating death rate in the UK. Um, we're sitting just shy of 32,000 deaths at the moment. Yeah, and that's already a huge amount of people that you know have lost their lives to this, but you know some estimates are putting the figure nearer to you know 40,000. If you look at excess deaths compared to the five-year average, there's a lot more than being officially reported as COVID deaths still. And I think it will be a while before we can confidently say what that number is. But this week, the UK has now racked up the highest death toll in Europe. Woo. (laughs) Sad woo. (laughs) A sad woo indeed. But the government have been pushing the idea that we talked about last week about how deaths can't really be compared internationally. But I think they've been using that as a little bit of a crutch. And the author of the article that we talked about, uh, David Spiegelhalter, Mm -hmm. he actually tweeted to ask the government to stop using his um, evidence to make that claim because I think he was talking more about the nuances and challenges in actually counting deaths but Mm -hmm. I don't think he's trying to diminish the fact that the UK death toll is a disaster. I watched a um, parliamentary committee meeting where he was giving evidence and yeah he he referred back to the article because I think he got asked about it a few times because it's been referred to so much in the last week or so and he, he kind of said he wrote it in response to the fact that there was almost this bizarre European league table that kept appearing you know like where do we rank as like Mm -hmm. a general 
we have more deaths, we have less deaths. So that, yeah, without looking at the nuances, exactly. But he was like, of course we can make comparisons. You just need to do it properly with modeling and data. And, you know, you don't just look at one number and be like, oh, see, we're doing better than this country. So it's not so bad. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to consider. And I think that's why it's really great that statisticians like him are, you know, writing articles that are clear and that the public can understand because a lot of these things can get missed. Like I know a lot of people will say the US has the highest death rate and it definitely does and that's true. If you look at it per head of population, the UK is actually worse. But that's not to say that any one of those figures are exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Like each representation of deaths per yeah million population deaths uh, per case that each estimate comes with its own issues and caveats and mm-hmm. benefits also but yeah you, you need to look at a more complete picture and especially if the data you have is lacking and it will be for every country in different ways because it's hard to quantify things like this when they're still ongoing the true comparisons will be much clearer to make further down the line But there is still value in looking at comparisons in some ways, because if you can see that a country that's implemented certain measures is doing particularly well, is there something about that that you can adopt? What you want to be able to do, yeah, is look at those countries, see what they've done, maybe see what's been more successful and and use that evidence to inform policy. You know, unfortunately, we can't wait until everything's over and then work out what would have been the best thing to do in hindsight. So we need to try and learn what we can as we're going but one description I quite liked in in that meeting um was that somebody after hearing the description of trying to understand what different measures do and trying to understand what the prevalence is in a, in a certain area uh they said so it kind of sounds like we're trying to drive while looking through the rear view mirror mm. um <laughs> and I guess you want to see as close behind you as you can but yeah we're still kind of acting on things and then trying to work out, okay, how did that do in the context of the present? Yeah, that is a good analogy. I don't drive, so it went slightly (laughs) over my head. (laughs) (coughs) In Scotland this week as well, we're now almost at 2,000 deaths and over 13,000 cases. So Last week I mentioned the rate of infections going up in Grampian and since then I have heard that that is just largely to do with the increase of testing in hospitals and care homes, um, which I think we thought was possibly the reason. Um, But I've heard that from a few people who work in the health service up here. Another thing worth noting is after this week where we've started hearing about the stay alert messaging and possible changes to lockdown. Scotland is still actually thought to be slightly behind England and possibly other parts of the UK in the epidemic curve. Mm -hmm. Our first case came here a bit later and the R number or reproductive number, which is the number of new infections from any one case on average, it needs to be below one for the virus to die out in the population. Anything above one, you'll start to see the kind of exponential increase in disease that we saw before lockdown. 
And I think in Scotland, the R number doesn't seem to have been below one for a long enough or consistent enough time period for Mm -hmm. people to be confident about lifting things here. And I think the R number at the moment is largely estimated based on the number of deaths because obviously without blanket testing, we can't actually tell this number exactly. But, but that is something that we've definitely heard a lot of from the government, the idea of getting R down. Yeah, and then with the R number itself as well, I think you can also have individual R numbers, you know, like the R that you would get from sampling from, you know, the overall population of Glasgow, for example, might be, uh, you know, 0.7. But then if you specific, if you specifically look at care homes, you might find that that's over one, you know, or if you look within a hospital, um, it's, it's really prone to the setting that you're in. And, you know, all that really reflects is just if you're in an environment where it's easier to spread the virus, the rate of spread is going to be higher. Um, and it's things like that that make it difficult to estimate it. Um, it it's why it's been so tricky to try and nail that down. Yeah. But ideally, you can try and get an overall picture because it helps to work out what you want to do in terms of getting that number down. Mm-hmm. But I think this idea of Scotland being slightly behind in the epidemic curve could feed into why there's a bit of discontent between the kind of route that Nicholas Sturgeon is talking about going down versus the media speculation about what Boris was going to say today. Which has been confirmed now as well. But Yes. <laughs> and I think as well, uh, the Welsh and Northern Irish devolved assemblies as well, I think, have kind of sided on track keeping measures in place, right? Yeah. And I think regardless of what changes you choose to make, the new slogan that the government seemed to have is... I think bizarre. In a public health crisis, you want your messaging to be so painfully clear. You don't want it to be ambiguous. You don't Mm -hmm. want it to be confusing. And I think the stay alert message maybe falls a bit foul of that. Yeah. So to... For anybody that uh, didn't watch the announcement or, um, you know, maybe wasn't quite clear about what things have been announced... um, In Scotland, it was confirmed that the only thing that's changing is that you can now go outside for exercise as much as you like, but that is still exercise. Uh, You know, I think they specified that doesn't mean sitting down in parks and sunbathing or anything. Everything else is still the same. Guidance about who, you know, should be going to work is the same. Um, It's just that you can go outside for exercise a bit more because it does have considerable benefits for people's mental health and general well-being. In England, however... Boris Johnson just made an announcement that says uh, says that they're trying to enter a new stage of several steps of trying to lighten restrictions. Um, he started off by saying now is not the time to come out of lockdown because the uh, reproductive number is still uh, possibly quite close to one. But he then went on to describe a few changes that you know could be quite considerable depending on how people react. Um, one of those was he referred to previous advice that uh, people should work from home if possible but the only people that should be going to work are key workers and um, that was what resulted in so many people being on furlough or not able to work. Now the advice is that you should still work from home if possible but if you can't 
you should be actively encouraged to go back to work, which is troubling, but uh, we'll get to that. Uh, He also recommended that when traveling to work, people should avoid public transport if at all possible, um, and that distancing measures mean that capacity will be lower, but that people should either drive, cycle or walk. And he also mirrored the Scottish government advice that you can now have unlimited exercise, but this extends to being able to go and sit in parks and sunbathe and have barbecues and play sport only with members of the household. But again, I think that's going to be quite difficult to check um, if people are out playing football. And yeah, there were a number number of steps after this for if things go well, but we'll get to that. Going back to the point about people being actively encouraged to go back to work. um, Yeah, that could bring quite a few difficulties, I think. Yeah, I think there could be a bit of a class issue there because generally most people who have higher paid office type jobs are probably more easily able to work from home. Mm-hmm. Whereas things like construction, plumbing, joinery, you know, things where you yeah. actively need to go somewhere to do something, th- those people are then being put at a higher risk than people who are able to stay and work from home. And I think that's a problem because we're already seeing socioeconomic status as literally people at higher risk of death based on that. He did actually specify industries like manufacturing and construction when he was talking about this as well. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a worrying trend that the people most affected by this are the people that need the most help. And this is slightly unrelated. It's to do with like the furlough scheme. I did see some people discussing some of the language that was being used in certain areas about uh, discussing lightening the furlough scheme in future using language such as like weaning people off it yeah that was rishi sunak the chancellor said something about people being dependent Mm -hmm. as if it's it just feeding back into the narrative that people that are receiving help from the government are you know like sapping money from them or something like no we're actually in a crisis and they don't have the financial resources that people that are you know more well off have and so you try and you know literally stop people starving I mean that's what's going on right you know if you can't work you need to have money coming in so you can survive yeah it's hard not to be a bit cynical when they've made statements like that that this same week they're then encouraging people to go back to work. Like mm-hmm. it feels like an economic decision. Um, it's yeah. not to say that it's important to do things that protect the economy because quite often in recessions, it is again the people who are least well off in the first place that end up being much worse affected. But yeah, I, it's difficult. It's really difficult. I don't, envy anybody that's in a position of deciding policy at the moment um because yeah like you said recessions themselves have a huge impact and yeah not necessarily in any different kind of spread of demographic than the lockdown is doing but the longer this goes on the worse it might be looking i mean there's been some scary forecasting coming out that you know we might have the worst recession depression you know economic downturn in 300 years Mm -hmm. um 
I have no scale of reference for that. I mean, I was too young to really understand the, you know, 2009 housing crash at the time. I learned about that from the big short. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, I was born in the early 90s, so wasn't aware of the, you know, the downturn just before then. Um, so so I, I can understand where people are coming from when they are pushing for things to reopen, but it's just that also comes with its own risks and dangers. Well, yeah, and again, there's still economic problems because if you start to reopen things like bars and restaurants, but that they have to maintain social distancing within those restaurants or bars, then you can't get the footfall that you would normally have to make a profit. Mm -hmm. So how will those businesses stay afloat like they're allowed to be open so they can't claim on any kind of insurance and things like that but they can't make a profit either like a lot of businesses will end up having to close but then what can you do can you freeze rents for businesses is i don't know what's realistic like it's really really difficult mm -hmm. it's really difficult to know what to do yeah i, I do worry about how many bars, restaurants, clubs are just not going to make it through this because, you know, in, in sit-down restaurants, maybe you can implement some distancing rules, you know, split the tables up, make sure people are sat far apart and clean everything really well before the next person comes in. But I don't see how bars and clubs or, you know, more casual dining places, or if you just have a really small premise you know a lot of places in Glasgow are pretty small because they're you know mm. in the bottom of tenement buildings and I, I don't even know how you could go in without being within two meters of someone a lot of the time it's just functionally impossible yeah it's a really difficult one I think people have been a bit disappointed with some announcements by the Labour Party today they wanted renters not to be evicted but they were then just saying that people defer payments. But if you're paying rent in London or Edinburgh, it's also very expensive living there, mm. and you can't afford to pay rent right now, are you likely to be able to pay two months' rent in a one or further down the line? Like mm -hmm. A lot of the time, people are paying a good proportion of their salary on rent as it is. Um, so even some of the solutions that we are seeing suggested are not catering to everyone. Yeah, and that so that makes me um, also you know want to mention again about the public transport advice. Um, I, again, this kind of came across a lot like how people were uh, you know memeing on things that had been leaked before about what stay alert means and you know don't go outside, but if you do, do this, but also don't and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the advice to not use public transport if you can help it, but uh, if you do, you need to keep distancing and all that kind of thing. So in that announcement, it was don't use public transport if possible, but if you do, be aware that because of distancing, again, that's there'll be limited capacity. Um, otherwise, you should be driving or walking or cycling. So immediately, I was thinking, right, so if you can drive and you're in somewhere like London, where most people use public transport, you already have a lot less to worry about right now uh, because you you have the massive privilege of having a car in somewhere like that, and a lot of people don't have cars. Second, the people that are 
essentially left with no other choice but to use public transport, are also now in more danger because there's lower capacity and it's probably going to be very busy or maybe you can't even make it to work still if that's their only option. Mm -hmm. And I had joked just beforehand about oh, it'll probably be, you know, just just walk to work. Like, sure, if you're living outside of London, because most people can't afford to live in central London and you work in central London, like a lot of people that live in the suburbs of London do, uh, are you supposed to walk two hours to work? I, You know, yeah. <laughs> obviously you're going to have to take the tube. It, 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 There's just so much inequality with the advice that's. I appreciate that's, that's kind of what you're left with, but it's just really jarring how split the effects of this are going to be. Yeah, because we also did see early on before lockdown that a lot of people who worked for Transport for London were at high risk, obviously, because they're exposed to lots of members of the public, um, bus drivers and things, were Mm -hmm. making up a lot of the early cases that we were seeing. So that's also putting them at risk uh, if we're starting to get more people back to work and therefore using transport. One thing I will say about the cars is that if more people in London are driving, the traffic's going to be awful. But that's also then surely not going to be great for cycling. So if you're wanting more people to cycle, you still need better infrastructure for that. And I know they've announced plans to try and improve this for people walking and cycling in general but I feel like it's something that should have been done before the pandemic anyway that's my own gripe but no it's been an ongoing discussion about trying to you know encourage people to cycle or walk to work but if there's no safe way of doing it you know it seems to have just been a never-ending issue Mm -hmm. I mean personally near me we've had a lot of cyclists uh, compared to normal and so many of them still cycle on the pavement despite how quiet the roads are Um, I think because there's still a lot of issues with potholes and some of the paths around here are not big enough well most of them aren't big enough for the amount of people that are now cycling um, which is great I'm all for physical exercise and everything but all the people now still avoiding the roads because there's not the infrastructure um Mm probably would have helped if this had been sorted a little sooner. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially as well because Glasgow has those city bikes that you can rent, which are also really handy and I use them a lot. But quite often if I was running late for work, there just wouldn't be any and I would end up getting public transport. So provisions for things like that would also need to be increased. But I guess that's maybe a little bit further down the line because, as we say, Scotland still isn't encouraging people to go back to work. Yeah, everything here is the same, except you can exercise outside as many times as you want. Mm -hmm. I do worry about whether people are going to end up confusing what they should be doing with the advice from the the English portion of government, because I, I think if you're not totally aware of how things work with devolved policies you would easily get the impression that the big televised seven o'clock statement from Boris Johnson is what applies to everybody. Mm. Or you'd think, oh, if things are lightening up there, then surely it can't be that bad here, you know, if, if you're not quite as informed about everything. I yeah. easily see that happening. Yeah, that's true. It's disappointing that that wasn't more clear in the Prime Minister's speech. 
I can see why he might have felt he was undermining himself if he pointed that out. But as I touched on earlier, if the R number isn't quite the same in Scotland as it is in England, then that really could be putting people at risk because possibly the reasons that he has for lifting lockdown in England aren't quite holding true here yet. Yeah, I know in Glasgow the number of cases is still increasing at a relatively steady rate. I don't think it's gone down too much, you know, and enough that I'm still, you know, feeling I should be cautious outside. You know, I definitely don't get the impression that it's died down and it's okay to start relaxing. And I do wonder how it would work with people that in England go back to work and as part of work maybe need to cross the border into Scotland. What happens then? But yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I guess that's also highlighting an important problem. But yeah, I guess that's the problem with the, with the devolved nations all taking slightly different approaches. Yeah, definitely think it would have helped if there was a bit more clarity from the official statement that things differed. Um, quite early on in his statement, um, Boris Johnson said that this was done having consulted all four nations. But this is also on the same day that uh, Nicola Sturgeon tweeted that this was the first I've seen of uh, a lot of the announcements from the Sunday papers. And especially having all of the leaders of the devolved nations taking a different stance from the Prime Minister, it it sounds like even if there was a consultation, there that would have ended on agreeing to disagree. Yeah, I, I suppose uh, saying you consulted them doesn't mean you came to agreement. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest... I suppose you can either choose to believe um, Boris Johnson saying that he did consult, or you could believe mm. Nicola Sturgeon saying that the first she heard of it was the Sunday papers. And I tend to come down the side of believing Nicola Sturgeon because I feel like the entire handling of this pandemic by the government has come through media speculation. Things seem to be drip fed to them before they're mm. officially announced. We had that back at the start with the idea of herd immunity being floated in the press and then being torn apart in Twitter and lots of scientists and people coming forward saying, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. And then the government saying, no, no, we don't want herd immunity. The lockdown, we had a pretty good idea, was going to happen before it was announced on the 23rd of March. So I don't know. It's a bit of a weird one. And I don't know what the strategy is. I don't know if there's a good reason for doing it that way. But it does feel like we hear about things before we're told about them officially. We even had the uh, you know logo that appeared at the end of the announcement with the stay alert uh I can't even remember it. I can remember the original one because it's a good one. Um, I, I can only remember the stay alert part. <laughs> what was it? It was it was stay alert, control the virus, save lives. Is that it? Yeah. It's naff. <laughs> it's really bad. That came out in the press or social media or something before the statement, um, mm-hmm. which was probably a bad idea because all I've seen are memes about it um and people just breaking down why the color choice is bad why have green if it doesn't mean go we're coming out of lockdown um yeah i think probably the important thing to come out of all of this is how people respond regardless of how it's been put across it will just depend on 
what people do afterwards, you know. Maybe people will get the idea that they should, they should still be being careful and not that much will change in people's behavior. Mm. Um, but there's also the risk that this puts across that they can go back to somewhat normal now. <coughs> so uh, one of the other things that um, Boris Johnson talked about was steps going forward. Um, so these announcements about unlimited exercise and being encouraged to go back to work are for now but he did also include descriptions of a step two and a step three which involve um, opening up primary schools to some years and possibly starting to open up some shops again Um, he said june the first would be the soonest um, and that this would all be informed by the latest figures that we have for you know whether things are spreading or if there have been local outbreaks again um but he even went as far as describing step three, which would be July or later, um, opening up some of the hospitality industry if the numbers support it. Mm. I, I just, I don't know. I just think it's a bit soon. I mean, I've been hearing discussions about the risk of us getting a second peak, which is like a well-documented thing with pandemics and epidemics. I don't know if it's a bit soon to start telling people, oh, in July, uh, we'll start opening up cinemas and stuff again. Because mm. we just don't know. I, I don't think it's a good idea to give people the idea that that will happen because, I don't know, I feel like it's very possible that that won't. And then you just have a lot of people angry that they're not being allowed to go back when they feel they were told they could, you know? Yeah. Just when you said July there, I realised how soon that is. Yeah, 1st of June for opening schools up is like in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, I definitely don't think Scotland will be opening schools um, before the summer holidays. Summer holidays do start earlier up here, which maybe helps. It's the end of June that Scottish schools go on their holidays, so it almost wouldn't be worth opening, even if you could. Whereas Mm -hmm. I guess because the English summer holidays run a bit later, there's, there's more time in school that's been lost. But I wonder if moving the holidays would have been a better idea than opening. Yeah, I hadn't even actually thought about doing that. I don't know. Yeah, there. I guess there is the chance that they could just shift the academic year. But then it would depend on how individual schools have been working or how much work from home any of the you know pupils have been doing. Hmm. It's a complicated one. <coughs> Last week, we talked a little bit about the 100,000 tests target that the UK government had reached, um, the 100,000 tests per day from the end of April. Unfortunately, this target has not been met again. I think the day after, on May the 1st, they did reach it, but the rest of the week, it's been quite a bit below 100,000 averaging about 75 to 85,000 tests per day. So it does feel a little bit like it could have been a PR stunt rather than Mm. a useful change that's been introduced. Yeah, I had a quick look at what the figures were for today, or sorry, I guess uh, until 9am from yesterday, Mm. um, when in the statement this evening, Boris Johnson was talking about the fact that in this new plan for the next few weeks or months, we're going to have to be testing literally hundreds of thousands of people a day, is what he said. Mm. And today there were, um, I think it was about 92,000 
individual tests conducted, which worked out about 65,000 people. Yeah, that's not really great. And I think the other thing that came out today that was reported in Sky News, at least, was that 50,000 tests were sent to the US. Oh, really? Um, Because there wasn't the capacity to do it here. And again, at quite a bit of an expense. So it feels like if that wasn't necessary, if they hadn't been going for the 100,000 tests per day target, would they have needed to do that and spend all that money? Like, I hope that that's not the reason why that's happened, but it looks really bad. Surely if they've had to send those tests out to be done, that means we don't have capacity for those tests. Yeah, but I guess from my point of view, if we didn't have the capacity, then it would be great, but it would be fine because you could work up to it. It feels like because they had this target Mm. that I think we talked about last week as well about how it's a bit arbitrary. Yeah. That it's like they've gone for this target, but to make it, if they've had to send tests out, and again, remembering it costs a lot of money to outsource it to a whole other country, it's it's quite questionable. Yeah, and coupled with what we just said about them not reaching that target except for when they needed to, it's mm-hmm. not looking good. And yeah. it wouldn't matter so much if they hadn't set that target. Yeah, and it looks like as long as capacity was going up, yeah, and that we were able to start rolling out more widespread testing, which has happened. I mean, you know, my own sister got tested this week. Um, she had to wait a little longer than she would have liked, uh, you know, maybe an extra day or two, but she was able to get tested, which wasn't happening before. Mm-hmm. And if there was that improvement alone without saying, oh, we're going to test 100,000 people in a day, there wouldn't, yeah, maybe there wouldn't have been the need to outsource that at such a big expense. Yeah, it just also feels like it's not a good time to just be making yourself look good. It is generally actually documented that people tend to get behind their leaders more during times of crisis. It's a phenomenon called the rally round the flag effect. So it's this idea of let's all hunger down and work together and try Mm -hmm. to see the back of this. So I I think if the government were managing things fine, they don't need to do these random, pointless PR stunts. Another thing to mention about the testing as well is that reports from the BBC this week say that heads of testing firms and laboratories said that they didn't really get proper communications on this and that some of the targets, such as the 100,000 target, were first communicated to them through the media which goes back to some of the stuff we mentioned earlier about Nicola Sturgeon saying that they weren't hearing about things until it was leaked in the Sunday press. So, I mean, again, this is all hearsay, but it's a bit concerning. Another thing that was highlighted in that report as well is that local approaches are maybe a more effective way of doing this. So we talked about people having to travel quite long distances to get tested but what the testing firms have said is that it's actually generally more effective anyway if this can be managed locally and it'll just be a more efficient system so hopefully things like that will be looked at when we go into the track and trace 
stage of things. Uh, yeah, and it looks like we're going to be needing this as a method to both, uh, you know, so that people can keep going to work if they have symptoms that might be COVID and, you know, they actually just have a cold or something similar, um, but also so that we can get a good grasp of where any outbreaks are or when cases are going up. Um, mm. and basically, until we have a vaccine, we're going to be needing to keep doing efficient widespread testing. Yeah, Another thing that's been mentioned in terms of managing the spread of the virus are new measures to have quarantining for 14 days from anyone on incoming flights to the UK. Early reports about this that came out before uh, Boris Johnson's speech today were that this would be implemented from the start of June. But that wasn't confirmed today. It was some point in the future, I think, as well, which is interesting. There must be trying to work out when to do that but why isn't this happening already (laughs) yeah this is one that's not clear to me and a few epidemiologists um on twitter i've certainly seen have been asking if this is following the science why was it not always what we were doing what exactly has changed um like can we get a bit more information on that i do understand that the aviation industry are a bit worried about it but um I feel like if we had been doing things like this all along and had managed the whole situation better, which obviously we, we, we can't really say what that would look like, but I know in Hong Kong they've been doing this all along. Um, my sister's fiancé lives in Hong Kong. He was allowed to go back into the country because he's a resident there. Um mm-hmm. And he had to wear a tag and not leave his house for two weeks. And then he was allowed to go. But in any case, Hong Kong have actually managed cases pretty well. So possibly if we had been doing this from the start, hindsight is a great thing. But maybe the effects wouldn't have been so bad. Another measure that was uh, featured quite heavily at the start of the week was the launching of a new contact tracing app. It's going to be an official NHS one. The idea is that you enter details for if you have any symptoms and uh, the app will use Bluetooth as a way of gauging if you've come into contact with anybody that has had symptoms or that has tested positive. Um, And a lot of the discussion ended up being controversy around privacy and where personal details were going to be stored um, but mostly because it was announced that they were going to be trialing the app on the Isle of Wight. Uh, Part of the reason I believe for that is because being an island it's quite a good way of checking it um, because you have you know a relatively isolated population of people um, and as long as you can get enough people to use it you can use it as a good way of checking how people are interacting with each other and that kind of thing. But whether enough people use it is uh, turning out to be somewhat of a problem, isn't it? Yeah. So one study reported that for it to be effective, uptake would need to exceed the use of popular apps like WhatsApp, which I think when you think about the number of people who use WhatsApp, it's a kind of app that's used cross-generation already. That's quite a big ask, I think. If it was an app that tends to only be used by young people, then you could believe 
that getting enough numbers of people to who have smartphones to download it and use it would be plausible. But I don't know, without the stats um, in front of me, I assume that WhatsApp is one of the more widely used smartphone apps as it is. Yeah, and I think that coupled with the privacy issues, I mean, I, I can see enough people feeling that they you know, don't want to install something that they think is questionable. You know, I can definitely see somebody thinking, oh, I don't want the government being able to tell where I am all the time. Mm -hmm. So not installing it when, from my understanding, that's not what it does. Um, I think there have been a couple of explanations of how the app works uh, in the last few days, but it seems like all information uh, is held locally on your own phone. when you start to use it um, and I think it doesn't ask for any personal details really other than like the first bit of your postcode um, in terms of your location and by using Bluetooth to work out who you've been near, you know, other than allowing the app to use Bluetooth on your phone all the time, the, the difference is that when you become symptomatic, it's at that point that that information needs to be shared because that's the only way that you can work out if someone else has been near you. Um, but I, I know that there have been a lot of issues to do with deciding, yeah, whether there's like a central system for storing that data or whether it's all done completely locally. And then you also run into issues with, you know, does everybody have a smartphone that has the battery to last long enough that it can, you know, be on checking where you are all the time? And does everybody even have a smartphone that's going to be capable of using it? You know, like a lot of people have either older versions of smartphones or maybe don't have a smartphone. Um, I know a lot of people do, and it's very easy to assume that that's an easy way of doing it. But there's probably a good amount of people that don't have the privilege of having a smartphone that they can, you know, install this app on to tell them if they've been near someone with the virus. Uh, What then? Um, it's definitely an issue with a lot of problems. Maybe some of these questions will end up getting answered from the trial in the Isle of Wight, but um, yeah. it's tricky. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have some questions about the data thing as well. I understand that if you're developing an app quite quickly, as they will have for this, that if storing the information centrally just seems to be the easiest way to physically do it then I understand the choice I know other EU countries have introduced ones that are completely local um, Mm -hmm. without the need for the central server Um, but I can see why people could be a little bit anxious about providing this data to the government at the moment Um, currently we're protected by GDPR which is data privacy legislation but I don't know for a fact what will happen when we leave the EU. As as far as I know, I mean, I don't know what the legislation is or if there are plans for that yet. Um, in theory, we will stick with something along the lines of GDPR because it will be easier for trade and things um, in, in terms of tech if you're selling apps or products. Um, it, it needs to be compatible with that. Um, but I guess it's just the fact that that's a, in our near future and we don't really know. On the flip side of that, um, I can see that the data later could be really useful for research. Um, 
in my own work, I use secondary data, so NHS patient data um, that was just collected routinely that I then use for research. So it is a brilliant tool, but the most important thing I think about using people's data in that way is just being really clear about how you're going to protect it, how you're going to store it, who will have access to it. Um, one thing in particular is that it shouldn't really be used for any kind of profit unless it's been approved um, by the public in this case. Um, so again, I think it's fine so long as all that's absolutely crystal clear. I, I definitely think it's important to have a good understanding of your own you know the privacy of your personal data and how much information you want to share um and you know especially with the way we live our lives now and you know the kind of technology we're using and apps it, it's definitely good to be informed about that um part of me kind of thinks though that part of me thinks that maybe the reaction to an app like this has been a little over cautious i don't mean to say that it's not something worth thinking about. It's very important. And if you're giving location data about yourself in any way, yeah, it's, it's important to make your own personal decision about that. But by having information like that centrally available, it will really help with tracking where outbreaks are happening and if certain areas are more affected than others or if numbers are starting to go up. Um, there's a lot of benefit to come from it. I guess I'm just hopeful that this whole debate doesn't prevent it from being taken up so much. Well, I definitely think from a public health point of view, an app like this is really, really useful. It does sound like the government have already this week been looking at not using the one that they've given a £250 million contract to have made, and they might go and use the one that Apple and Google are looking to launch. I'm, I'm not exactly sure of the details on the one that they're switching to, apart from the fact that I'm pretty sure it's local data on that one. I do see, especially as a public health researcher, the centrally collected data from an app like that would be incredibly valuable because understanding pandemics and how they spread will be especially important if anything like this ever was to happen again. If it did, it would probably be different virus, so it wouldn't be exactly comparable, but it's still a really useful thing to understand. My problem is that without being overly political, I think it's valid not to trust the way this current government has handled data before. Mm. Um, the Leave campaign that Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings had a big role in was investigated by the police for the way it handled things. So, I don't know. It's a tricky one. Um, one of the biggest issues uh, remains, though, that we still do need enough people to use it for it to be effective. The Telegraph uh, had an article out today that apparently reports that just 40% of people used the app on the Isle of Wight. Um, mm. I wasn't aware of that when we started talking about that. I thought I'd just have a quick look. But again, it might, you know, that doesn't necessarily reflect a realistic uptake because it is a trial and, you know, maybe people weren't as aware of it. And, um, you know, maybe some people didn't want to try and use it as part of a trial. Um, 
it's, it's dependent on quite a few things but i know that's a similar uptake level to i think it was singapore um mm. i think they've had about 40 percent of people take up the app there and i yeah i don't think that that's enough to be very effective i mean if you just think about you know when you're passing people um how often you might walk past somebody and if only 40% of the time somebody has an app, you're going to be missing a lot of chances where you might have come in touch with somebody. Yeah. I guess we'll just have to see what decision the government make in the end about the app and hopefully enough people start using it that we, you know, get some good effect to come out of it. <coughs> so, Kirsten, how are you, have you been doing this week in lockdown? Again, it's just a week that's gone really quickly. I couldn't really think what I'd done apart from, like, stupid things i'd seen on the internet uh there was a funny video of a woman getting attacked by a goose did you see it (laughs) no i don't think i have she's like walking across a car park and this goose comes and like attacks her she's like walking around the car park and it's like following her and it goes on for quite (laughs) a while and at one point she even like just drops her handbag runs into the car and the goose follows her into the car (laughs) oh my god Geese can be mean, man. I, I mean, because I went to uh, York for undergrad and there are so many ducks and geese around campus and you would learn very quickly to stay away from them, especially at certain times of the year. They, they would just like stand up to you if you like came across along a path um, and they didn't want you to pass them. Um, so I can totally see that happening. I guess that's why that video game, was the Untitled Goose Game, um, mm, that's great I'm still waiting to play that but it looks so funny so it's just like game where I don't think there's really an objective apart from the fact that you play the part of the horrible goose and you go around <laughs> upsetting the villagers in a nice little town <laughs> or village even <laughs> another cool thing I'd seen online was a guy who made his local pub in VR so literally he's like written this article where he's gone and spoken to developers in virtual reality gaming and stuff like that um and they basically helped him reconstruct his local pub but it was really funny he was saying like he'd spent a whole day trying to perfect the banisters in in this pub but it's like no one will notice no one will care why have i done this um (laughs) So yeah, that was someone hit hard by lockdown, I think. <laughs> if I had the money, I would 100% get a VR kit. I mean, I've only tried it a couple of times, but if you're stuck at home all the time, it's like the perfect way of not leaving your house, but also going somewhere else. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he even recreated his friends and put them in the pub. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, maybe I wouldn't go so far as like, I'm imagining they're a bit more than just stick men drawn in the room with him. No, no, they're they're quite convincing. Um, Because he he also put like, he pointed out that if you had enough pictures of someone's face, you could make them. So he had like Robbie Williams and Jurgen Klopp and stuff like that in his pub. (laughs) Um, Speaking of games... um, I've started playing something recently that has really scratched an itch uh, that I've had. So um, I've been wanting to um, redecorate our bedroom for a little while. Um, We don't get a lot of light this side of the building and um, the walls are like a light grey at the minute, which wouldn't be a problem if not for that. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, I wanted to do something about it for a little while, but what with all the shops being shut and 
decorating your house not being you know really a good use of anyone's uh going out in public mm. um i downloaded a game called house flipper um which oh. is exactly what it sounds like so you either you can do little jobs for people where you know that somebody's left a mess in a house and you go in and clean it or or, or they need redecorating or something but um you can also like yeah buy a rundown house and then you you redecorate the whole thing so you know you can knock down walls and like replaster the holes and like it's it's not you know anything um groundbreaking in the idea but <laughs> i've definitely found it quite a nice little you know mindless activity to do sometimes when i'm like you know bored and want something to do um like, <laughs> yeah that is <laughs> making me want to go and play the sims now <laughs> yeah it kind of reminded me of that like i whenever I played The Sims, I just spent most of the time making the houses. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's like that. But instead of having the top-down view, you're actually just walking around and having to paint the walls yourself, you know? That um, does sound quite cute. Yeah. It's definitely quite relaxing. It's like I've been watching a lot of property programs because I've been at home. I think I talked about one before, but there's also Scotland's Home of the Year where these people just go around and oh. judge people's houses to see who's got the <laughs> nicest one in Scotland. Um, oh, amazing. And then some grand designs as well. So uh, it's Oh, great. I love a bit of grand designs. <laughs> Especially yeah. when they come back five years later and they're like, so we still haven't finished it. <laughs> <laughs> also, Kevin McLeod is always so rude. Um, <laughs> I like that he doesn't lie to them if he doesn't like something, but it's just like really funny. <laughs> one I was watching the other day, um, this guy had this bath that was so cool, but it was kind of like a hammock almost, um, like the shape of the tub. And I was like, oh, that oh. looks well comfy. And then Kevin McLeod walks in like, oh no, that's horrible. That's awful. Oh, <laughs> do you regret the bathtub? And he was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Have you spent years of your life and your life savings designing this house exactly how you wanted it? Here, let me come in and just <laughs> shatter Rune. that. <laughs> yeah he's the worst but uh, anyway. I, I suppose you don't go on a show like Grand Designs without opening yourself up to some criticism though that's true that is true it's not been all property programs though um, me and my friends had a video call come movie night last night and watched Well, the plan was to watch a trashy Nicolas Cage film we accidentally picked one that was kind of good <laughs> frozen ground uh it's kind of he's he's a detective and there's a murderer it's based on a true story and i think basically they know this guy has been killing women but they don't have evidence um mm. so it's them kind of building the case um it's not like an amazing film but it, we it was actually better than we thought um i guess cuz we'd been hoping for a kind of Nick Cage outburst mad Mm. film Um, and it's actually kind of a gripping story (laughs) what have you been up to? I finished watching Hollywood today um, the Netflix miniseries Oh, I really enjoyed it Um, I I do want to say like I wasn't really watching it kind of socially critiquing it I know that there's been quite a lot of comment about that you know that they've taken a little bit of artistic license and it's, it's very much like a feel-good series you know you just you get really invested in the characters and you want them all to do well and it's nice for them in the end kind of thing um but 
I don't know. I, I just, I really liked the, the characters in it and they felt like, you know, well-developed people. They didn't fall too much into tropes. And, and I, d- I did also just like, uh, you know, having a bit of that like old Hollywood glamour style in it. You know, all the clothes are so cool and um, the accents. I mean, I don't know how good the accents were compared to, you know, those of the time. But um, it, it's a good series, you know. It, it has its issues, but I, I enjoyed watching it. Other than uh, Netflix, I've still been doing Couch to 5K. I had my first day I needed to retake. I've still been doing it every other day. Still enjoying my runs because it's, you know, a nice use of my time outside. Um, but on Thursday, I did week six, day one. So I did my 20-minute run finished that was really proud of that and then the following run you go back to doing intervals which some people find difficult I think because after a while you know you kind of get into the rhythm of running mm-hmm. uh, so if you then have to go back to stopping and starting again um, yeah p- people seem to find this day difficult when I started the third lot of running my hip started hurting um, which really made me feel uh, like I'm not in my <laughs> teens or early 20s because uh, that's not something I had the first time I tried to catch the 5k um, so you know I, I just thought you know I'll be sensible and let's just call it here you know I've done a good amount of running so we'll try again another day but um, I, I don't know it's it's funny I so yeah so much of this has been mental and today when I, I finished the run I redid it there was a point where like the thought entered my mind like, oh, I couldn't finish it the other day. Maybe I'm not going to be able to finish this whole thing. Uh, you know, maybe I'm not that good at running or like, oh, I'm going really slow. And I was just like, this is so much like some of the doubt I have about like normal work. And mm. it's this weird that it would pop into my head during a run. Um, mm. So I kind of ended up feeling like I had like a back and forth myself like oh you're not going to be able to finish it no no of course I can do it I've done every other day other than that I just need to you know push a little harder (laughs) I don't know maybe if I can try and carry that mentality through to the other work from home I'm doing that would be good but uh everything else is much more long term (laughs) yeah no I think there's a huge mental component to running um that is an interesting parallel with work actually that I hadn't really thought of maybe that is a good thing about running it's probably a good exercise in resilience maybe I mean everybody could probably do with a bit of resilience right now Mm. um so still going strong with the quizzes um I don't know if maybe a few people have started falling off them now because everybody's been doing them so much but (laughs) um I have done a couple now with Ewan's family and oh dear they've been tricky (laughs) oh really (laughs) Yeah, um, I mean, they've definitely been really interesting. Um, I've never placed very high, <laughs> but um, the the one we did yesterday, everybody made their own rounds. So uh, I did a general psychology neuroscience one, but, you know, tried to keep it um, introductory level, you know, like what's the name of the test with ink blots or, uh, or you know, name the four lobes of the brain or you know stuff like that um too complicated um but the other rounds were um geography but like a really hard version like I got very few points in that round um (laughs) there was a fashion round which I quite enjoyed a cinematography one so um 
someone put um, frames from best cinematography winners from the Oscars up on Zoom and we just had to guess the film. But it was quite tricky for some of them, you know, depending on like which shot they used and some of them were like older films. Um, So that was quite interesting. We also did a quiz on Friday. Me and my friends were meant to be doing a virtual escape room, but the ones who were organising it had a VE party with the people on their street so they were all kind of oh. like yeah I hope maintaining social distance um but they basically were drunk by the time we were meant to be doing our virtual escape room and they hadn't set it up so they were like sorry guys um and one of my other friends just rustled up an old quiz that one of their family members had done um mm-hmm. so we did that and it was actually a really good quiz but the music round was like lyrics from songs and you had to then uh say obviously what the song was just from the lyric and some of them were so frustrating because you would just know it but couldn't place it and then one I was like so confident about when it came up I can't remember the start of the line but the end of it was like all that glitters is gold and I was like it's smash mouth it's definitely smash mouth and I was like so pleased with myself and it turned out it was like a Led Zeppelin song oh <laughs> and we yeah, were all then just smash mouth too well that's the thing we were all then just like crying laughing because because it's such a meme of a song so we're <laughs> just like every time for the rest of the quiz whenever someone put a stupid answer we were like Sam body <laughs> so uh, yeah it was a happy mistake <laughs> it definitely seems like quizzes are having to like mix things up a bit you know because we've all been doing so many of them um i mean i've always loved quizzes and if anything the problem was getting people to go to them so i'm mm. really welcoming this change <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sure in the future all this will be um some kind of cringy pub quiz question in the end (laughs) yeah there was actually a really good tiktok ages ago as in like before all the lockdown of um a guy being at a pub quiz in like 2046 um (sighs) and the question is like who won the or who scored the winning goal in the european championship 2020 and the guy's going like that's a trick question it's a trick question it was cancelled in 2020 (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that's me, that's me at the quiz. (laughs) That brings us to the end of episode eight. Before we go, I want to do a quick shout out to the gist. We've mentioned them on the show before. It's the science magazine that myself and Gabby have both been involved with. I'm currently one of the editors-in-chief, so we had a launch of our virtual magazine this week. Um, Normally we would have a print edition, but obviously that wasn't possible uh, with all the university campuses being closed. So please do go and check that out. I'm really proud of it, although I have to shout out Katrina Wesencraft because she is the other uh, editor-in-chief and she's the one who really brought it all together. There's no COVID news in it, so if you want some science news that's a bit different, definitely go for that. Yeah, like Kirsten said, I, I was involved with it in the past. Like me and Katrina used to run it, uh, and now it's Katrina and Kirsten. So 
Katrina has definitely been uh, both of our rocks, I think, during magazine production in the past. Um, if you want to read it, go to the-gist.org where you can find the digital issue of the magazine. It looks really great. I'm looking forward to uh, reading through it myself. It, scientific escapism is probably a good thing to do right now. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on where you are, advice now varies, but in general, Stay home if you can, wash your hands, don't touch your face uh, as usual, you know, check reliable websites and sources for the latest information related to the pandemic. If you would like to contact us, our email is thecoronazone at gmail.com, our Twitter is coronazonepod and our Instagram is thecoronazone. Thank you so much for listening guys, we'll speak to you again next week. Thanks, bye. Bye.